0: time for the Des Moines Register for Thursday, November 9. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Linda Lundgren. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinion, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the Volunteer Voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Accu says that across the state it should be partly sunny and breezy today. Winds west 10 to 20 miles per hour. Clear to partly cloudy tonight with winds west northwest at 6 to 12 miles per hour. The forecast through the weekend for central Iowa looks like this. Today and tonight look for a high of 58 and a low of 32. Partly sunny and breezy today. Winds west 10 to 20 miles per hour. Clear to partly cloudy tonight. Winds west-northwest at 6 to 12 miles per hour. On Friday, a high of 50 and a low of 32, sunny to partly cloudy. On Saturday, a high of 55 and a low of 38, times of sun and clouds. And on Sunday, a high of 62 and a low of 37, mild with clouds and sun. Looking at recent precipitation in the 24 hours ending 4 p.m. Wednesday, there was zero precipitation. The month to date, we've had zero against a normal of 57 hundredths of an inch. Our year to date has been 23.13 inches against a normal of 33.63 inches. And last year to date, we had had 28.20 inches. Sunrise was at 6.56 this morning. Sunset tonight, 5.01 p.m. Moonrise today, 3 a.m. and Moonset today, 3.22 p.m. Turning now to the headlines on the front page section of the Des Moines Register. Polk's $350 million airport bond issue is approved. Victory is sweet, says Boson, who was voted Des Moines' first female mayor. And Demo- the Democrats have a good day at the polls. Now, here with the first story is Linda.
1: Well, I'll read the article about the uh, Des Moines mayor. Uh, Boson was voted, voted Des Moines' first female mayor. Connie Boson has won the Des Moines mayor's race and will become the first woman to hold the capital city's top spot. Following a months-long and at moments contentious campaign, Des Moines City Council at Large Representative Bozen, 72, edged out fellow council member Josh Mandelbaum with 723 votes separating the two, according to unofficial results. She will replace Des Moines' longest-serving mayor, Frank County, who was 75, and who did not seek re-election. Unofficial results show Bozen earned 48% of the votes, while Mandelbaum got 46%. Denver Foote, 27, a cosmetologist and activist, earned 3% of the votes. Security guard and musician Chris W. Von Arx, 28, got 2%. Bozen, who ran on issues such as economic development, public safety, and education, celebrated her win among about 100 family and friends Tuesday night at Chuck's Restaurant on 6th Avenue in the Highland Park neighborhood. A Des Moines staple known for its thin crust pizza, it's a spot that Bozen says has become a tradition as a place to celebrate election victories. As results rolled in, relatives, friends, and former co-workers sat at different tables or stood mingling and waiting in one of the restaurant's back rooms. A large banner hung on one of the amber-colored walls that read, Des Moines First Woman Mayor Connie Bozen. Community leaders such as at-large City Council Member Carl Voss and Iowa State Representative Eko Abdul Samad made appearances. In a room next door, Bozen's campaign manager, Sam Roker, former City Council member Christine Hensley, Bozen's husband, Ted Bozen, and Polk County Supervisor Angela Conley huddled around a laptop, refreshing results and discussing precincts being reported. Dressed in a red blazer, Bozen roamed between both rooms, socializing with supporters and checking in with her sisters. Cheers from both rooms erupted shortly before 9 p.m. as Bosin greeted her supporters. Victory is sweet, Bozen said in her speech. I heard from Josh and we've committed that we are going to work together just as we have worked in the past because there is only one thing that we are focused on, and that's the citizens of our city and how we can make it the best for everyone, she said. She thanked her husband as well as her family, friends, and supporters, including fellow city council members and county who endorsed her. We have so much promise for the city, and I've talked about it on the campaign. There are four categories. We want to create a safer Des Moines. We want to revitalize neighborhoods. And we need to get more economic growth. And we need to ensure that we take care of people, she said. We know it's not easy. We know there's going to be a lot of work. But I know if we collectively all work together, we can make great things happen, Bozin said and we will keep building on the momentum that's been built and keep building the city to be the city that we all want to live, work, and thrive in. Mandelbaum, who represents Ward 3, which includes the downtown core and the East Village, ran on issues such as city growth, affordable housing, strong public transportation, and climate. With Josh Mandelbaum campaign flyers peppered in between bright paintings from local artists, Mars Cafe, a mainstay of the Drake neighborhood, normally packed with college kids hunched over laptops, transformed Tuesday night into the campaign's headquarters, complete with a lighted stage, media gaggle, and catered Cajun chicken. Mandelbaum, 44, voted early, so he spent his day door knocking, dropping by east side houses with bilingual literature in the mid-afternoon. His campaign said he had knocked on doors in every ward and planned to keep knocking doors until polls closed at 8 p.m. Nearly a 100 people had come and gone from the cafe throughout the night, but about 50 people stayed to hear Mandelbaum concede just after 9 p.m. Mandelbaum entered from the back of the store, shaking hands and getting encouraging words from his supporters as he and his family made their way to the makeshift stage. A few minutes ago, I called Mayor-elect Bosin to congratulate her on a hard-fought race. She ran a tough race. I know she cares tremendously about this community, he said. We came on the council together six years ago at the same time. We've worked closely together. I know our city is in good hands with Mayor Bosin. I want to congratulate her, and I look forward to working with her. I pledge to work with her and to do everything I can to make her successful and to make our city successful. (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. Foote, who uses they them pronouns, ran on issues such as public transit accessibility, pedestrian friendly neighborhoods, climate change, and the housing crisis. Von Arks said he wanted to lower property taxes, solve the homeless crisis and crime, and make city living more affordable. Von Arks, who filed paperwork for mayor weeks ahead of the deadline, was largely absent from the race. Bosin was elected to serve as the city council's at-large representative in 2017 and was previously on the Des Moines School Board for 14 years. The biggest issue facing the city is making sure Des Moines' growth and progress brings everyone along, regardless of where you live or who you are, she wrote in response to a Des Moines Register questionnaire. She said she'd address the challenge through economic development, including investment in small businesses and working with large employers to bring more jobs to Des Moines. Often drawing from her East Side origins and experience on the school board during the campaign, Bosin said she wants to tackle livability issues and public safety and fight for high-quality public schools. After all, it was her first love, education, that drove her to run for city council in the first place, she said. The council lacked a strong voice supporting schools, she previously told the Register. Bozen graduated from East High School and attended Grandview University and Des Moines Area Community College. She was born and raised in Des Moines and runs the Appalicious and the Salad Bowl concession stands at the Iowa State Fair. Vicki Agee, who came to Bosin's party with her husband, Doug Agee, said she worked with Bosin at the former Yonkers department store downtown. She's a very hard working woman, Agee said of Bosin. I'm very proud of her. When asked why Bosin was right for the role of mayor, Agee said, Well, one thing I think we need a woman as mayor. I think she'll try to get a lot done. She's done that in every job that she's had so far.
0: Polk's $350 million airport bond issue is approved. Voters sided with Des Moines International Airport on Tuesday, authorizing Polk County to issue up to $350 million in bonds for the airport's terminal expansion project, The vote was 80% in favor, according to unofficial results. The county supervisors in August approved the Des Moines Airport Authority's request to put the bond issue on the November ballot. The proceeds from the sale of the bonds will help fund the first phase of construction, replacing the existing terminal, which airport officials say is no longer adequate as passenger traffic sets record highs. The authority could have issued its own aviation revenue bonds, but it asked voters instead to give their okay so the county could issue lower interest general obligation bonds. The decision is expected to save the airport nearly $76 million. The positive outcome of this election exemplifies the shared vision of our community for a thriving and vibrant airport, Airport Executive Director Kevin Foley said in a news release. We are eager to move forward with this financial support, and we are committed to using these funds wisely to enhance the travel experience and expand our airport services. Foley has previously said the airport is prepared to pay back the total amount and the loan will not increase property taxes. According to Assistant Executive Director Brian Mulcahy, the airport already has about $100 million on hand with no other debts. The airport authority voted over the summer to set the budget for the first phase of the new terminal at $445.4 million. The terminal will have 17 gates plus 8 remote aircraft parking spots to accommodate rising passenger traffic up from the current 12 gates. The check-in, baggage claim, and security checkpoints will be built to support 4 million annual passengers as compared to 2019's 2.9 million, a record the airport is on pace to break this year as it tallies unprecedented monthly traffic. Construction of the terminal will begin in April of 2024. We believe this victory is a testament to the strong partnership between the Des Moines Airport Authority and the community it serves. We are excited about the possibilities that lie ahead, Jake Christensen, Airport Authority Chair and President of Christensen Development said in a statement. A study will kick off likely in January to assure the airport is prepared to pay back the debt. It will take two to three months to complete, said Timothy Oswald, a public finance specialist with the consulting firm Piper Sandler, which assists Polk County with bond issues. After that, a loan agreement will be drawn up. The bonds could go on sale as early as next summer. The first round of bonds would amount to one hundred million dollars with a second sale scheduled in two thousand twenty five to meet the remaining cost of two hundred million to two hundred fifty million. The airport considered alternative funding mechanisms, including a public-private partnership. However, it would have had to give up an operating asset to pay an investor such as its parking franchise.
1: And then our uh, third article on the front page. Dems have a good day at polls. Elections might offer insight into 2024 battles. Tuesday's off-year elections offered a wide glimpse into the minds of Americans ahead of the consequential 2024 elections, with major bellwether elections for key issues such as abortion rights and how Republicans and Democrats will fare on the national stage next year. Democrats saw major victories in red states as Ohio voters approved an amendment enshrining abortion rights into the state's constitution, and Democratic incumbent Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear secured re-election. So here are the three biggest takeaways from last night's prelude of the 2024 elections. A win for abortion rights in Ohio. Abortion rights advocates saw a massive victory Tuesday night after Ohio voters approved a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. The measure, called Issue 1 on the ballot, guarantees abortion access up until the point of viability, typically around 24 weeks gestation. Abortion is still permitted afterward in cases to save the life or protect the health of the pregnant patient. The efforts to protect abortion rights in the Buckeye State garnered significant attention after Ohio voters rejected a Republican-backed proposal in August that would have made it more difficult to alter the state's constitution. The proposal, which would have raised the threshold to amending the Constitution from 50% to 60%, was brought forth in advance of the abortion vote in a bid to restrict abortion rights. But voters soundly rejected the measure, foreshadowing Tuesday night's win for supporters of abortion rights. Activists hope the victory is a positive sign for similar 2024 ballot measures to strengthen abortion access slated in more left-leaning states. And Bashir defeats Trump-backed Cameron in Kentucky. Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear fended off a challenge Tuesday from Trump-backed opponent Daniel Cameron, winning praise from Democrats who view his victory in the ruby-red state as a potential proxy for the 2024 presidential election. Since 2003, Kentucky's gubernatorial races have been a consistent bellwether for presidential elections and Democrats are hoping the trend will hold in 2024. Bashir, who is among the most popular governors in the country, leaned heavily into key Democratic issues during the campaign, including abortion rights and Biden's achievements on jobs and infrastructure. Described by his Republican opponent as a, quote, nice enough guy, Bashir's popularity has also been attributed to his down-to-earth temperament, a characteristic voters similarly ascribed to Biden in the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, some Republican leaders warned that Cameron's loss could be another sign of Trump's weaknesses with voters. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who is challenging Trump in the 2024 primary race, called the defeat another loss for Trump. One of Central Park Five wins New York City Council seat. Yousef Salam will be a member of the New York City Council. Salam, one of the Central Park Five, who was exonerated for a 1989 attack on a jogger, won election Tuesday without opposition. He easily won a Democratic primary earlier this year. I am really the ambassador for everyone's pain, Salam told the Associated Press in an interview. In many ways, I went through that for our people, so I can now lead them. DNA evidence exonerated Salam and the other co-defendants. Mississippi's governor's race, a message to Democrats, Mississippi's incumbent Republican Governor Tate Reeves decisively beat challenger Brandon Presley, striking Democratic hopes of an upset in the deep red southern state. In the run-up to the election, Reeves' smaller-than-normal polling lead and an overturned Jim Crow-era law led many Democrats to view the state as a potential new battleground. Presley, a distant relative of Elvis Presley, who serves as a member of the Mississippi Public Service Commission, ran his campaign in in a similar fashion to Democrats in the Georgia races, focusing on economic issues like expanding Medicaid and steering clear of divisive social issues, including abortion. He also sought to mobilize the state's large black population after voters in 2020 approved a measure believed to increase the power of black voters across the state. And lastly, Minnesota Town believed to be the first to elect Somali-American mayor. A suburban Minneapolis town Became what is believed to be the first in the U.S. to elect a Somali American mayor when 27 year old Nadia Mohammed was chosen to lead St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is a milestone, this is not the destination, Mohammed told supporters after the results came in Tuesday. As mayor, I want to ensure people see themselves reflected in our policies. Mohammed won handily over retired banker Dale A. Anderson, the Minneapolis Star Tribune reported. She had served on the city council since she was elected at age 23 in 2019. Dequa Dialak of South Portland, Maine, was the first Somali-American to serve as mayor of an American city, but she was selected by that city's six-member council in 2021, not elected by the voters.
0: And that concludes the front-page stories from the Des Moines Register. We're going to move now to the Metro and Iowa section, and we've got uh, quite a bit of local election results here as well as other uh, Metro and Iowa stories. We're going to start with this one from the Johnston School Board. The headline says Johnson School Board now held by a progressive majority. The Johnston Community School District Board of Education is now held by a progressive majority after Tuesday's election, shutting out the possibility of a board fully controlled by conservative candidates. Jason Arnold, incumbents Jennifer Cumberland, and Sonita Magra and Lia Williams won as a slate of candidates who were backed by progressive groups and Democratic politicians. According to unofficial Polk County results, Williams received almost 15% of the vote. Arnold Chamberlain and Mangra Ducher each received about 14% of the vote. Our community really does see that we need people who are really going to be for the entire student body and not just a select few, Williams said. Eight candidates ran for the four open at large seats on the Johnston School Board Arnold, Chamberlain, Mangra Duchar, Josh Nelson, Charles Steele, Lori Stiles, Michelle Veach, and Williams. School board elections are nonpartisan, but that did not stop political groups from weighing in on elections throughout the Des Moines Metro in twenty twenty three, particularly in Johnston. Ahead of November 7, the Family Leader, a Christian organization that in July hosted a half-dozen GOP presidential candidates, for the first time endorsed local school board candidates in Johnston. They endorsed Nelson, Steele, Stiles, and Veach. It spent thousands of dollars in mailers supporting them. Conservative group Moms for Liberty, with growing influence in elections and Republican politics over education policy, which is connected to nationwide legislative efforts to restrict or remove books and curriculum about LGBTQ topics and race, also backed Steele and Veach. Meanwhile, One Iowa Action, which advocates for LGBTQ Iowans, also endorsed for the first time. They backed Arnold, Mangra Dutcher, and Williams. The Johnston School Board election led the Des Moines Metro in fundraising for school board candidates. The eight candidates' campaigns together drew in more than $63,300, including more than $57,000 in cash contributions, more than a third of all the funds raised by candidates in 11 metro districts. The new slate of candidates prevented a conservative majority on the school board. The existing three members who were elected in 2021 were backed by a conservative group called 1776 Action. School board elections across Iowa have become increasingly politicized in recent years amid debates first over COVID-19 health measures in schools and then over what public education is, who should benefit from it, and whether parents should have a say as the Republican-dominated Iowa legislature has passed laws on those issues. In the absence of state guidance on Iowa's Senate File 496, school districts and boards have been left to make sense of the law and craft policy around it. Some Des Moines metro districts this year have chosen which books they—this uh, this article doesn't actually say that. The antecedent to that Senate File 496 is a, a law uh, regarding uh, books that can and can't be— uh, removed from schools. So let me go back and start this uh, paragraph over. In the absence of state guidance on Iowa's Senate File 496, school districts and boards have been left to make sense of the law and craft policy around it. Some Des Moines metro districts this year have chosen which books they should remove from school shelves and developed a nickname registry that applies to all students, not just those seeking to be called a different name or pronoun because of their gender identity. The results have been uneven across districts. Williams said the people of Johnston want the district to follow the law under SF-496, but given Tuesday's results, said, I think Johnston voters trust us to not allow the law not to undermine what our teachers are doing to begin with, which she said is serving students with their best professionalism.
1: Coleman wins Des Moines City Council Ward 1C. Special election fills the position vacated by Shoemaker. Chris Coleman won the special election Tuesday for Des Moines City Council's Ward 1 seat, putting the former at-large council member in charge of the vacant post left by Indira Shoemaker. Elected in 2021, Shoemaker resigned from her role in September after a six-month absence and amid calls from residents to step down. In an unofficial count, Coleman garnered 42% of the votes and will serve the remainder of Shoemaker's term, which expires in January 2026. Candidate Rob Barron trailed Coleman, gaining roughly 33% of the votes, followed by challengers Kathy Hellstern and R.J. Miller, both of whom received about 7%. Rosemarie Smith acquired 4% of the votes, while Dennis McCullough secured 2%. Coleman said Tuesday he is, quote, humbled by the voters' decision and excited to serve Ward 1. The ward, he says, he was born in, grew up in, and raised his children in. It's something I've never been able to do before, said Coleman, who previously served on the Des Moines City Council for five terms before retiring in 2019. We have so many great things on the horizon, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it and champion on it. Oh, I'm sorry, champion it. At most, as most people know, we've had absent leadership, and we have a lot of things on the docket that we need to get at, he said. I'm going to start in the morning. Shoemaker, a prominent Des Moines activist, made history in 2021 as the youngest person elected to the council. Shoemaker was 27 when she launched her campaign and ran on a platform to defund the police, ousting longtime incumbent Bill Gray. But Shoemaker's chronic absences from the council have caused tension between her and her ward constituents and colleagues. In April, Shoemaker's father told the register his daughter had been hospitalized, but declined to say why or for how long. Shoemaker has not responded to repeated requests for comment on her resignation. The council was faced with a decision to appoint someone to fill the vacancy or hold a special election. The council chose the latter, and Coleman was among the total six candidates vying for Shoemaker's seat. A seventh candidate... Kimberly Strope Bogus suspended her campaign just days
0: before the November 7th election. The Ankeny School Board flips progressive. A slate of four candidates promoted by local progressives flipped the Ankeny Community School District Board of Education in the November 7 election, empowering a majority that could take a critical view of new state laws impacting schools and throw more support behind district efforts to improve equity. Eight candidates ran for four open seats on the board with a four-year term, while two candidates ran for one seat with a two-year term following a vacancy. Incumbent Katie Clays, Shelley Northaway, Stephanie Gott, and Amber Romans won the four seats with a four-year term. Clays received 16 percent of the vote. Northway had 16%, God had 14%, and Romans had 14%, according to unofficial Polk County results. The candidates defeated incumbents Ryan Weldon and Joshua Palick, and newcomers Nick Bourne and Christian Holtz. Weldon received 13% of the vote, Palick had 13%, Bourne had 12%, and Holtz, who suspended his campaign in October, had 1%. Incumbent Amy Taglarini won the seat with the two-year term with 55% of the vote, defeating Amy Guidry, who received 45% according to unofficial Polk County results. School board elections are nonpartisan, but Ankeny school elections have stood out in recent years for their politicization, and several organizations across the political spectrum and local elected officials weighed in on the race. Some outside groups spent thousands of dollars on their preferred candidates in Ankeny and in suburban districts across the Des Moines metro. Clays, Northway, Romans, and Taglierini were promoted by local democrats and progressive groups while local republicans promoted Gott, Weldon, Palick, Bourne, and Geidrey. Gott, who was endorsed by the Teachers Union alongside Northway, Clays, Bourne, and Taglarini, told the Des Moines Register in a text on Wednesday morning that she is grateful to everyone who supported her and is looking forward to working with the other six members of the school board. In a phone call Tuesday night, Northway thanked everyone who supported her campaign and said she could not have won without them believing in her. The message is Ankeny now has hope, Northway said. She said that means hope for LGBTQ students, for books, for teachers, and for the district itself. Northway was the top fundraiser out of 72 Des Moines Metro School Board candidates the register analyzed. She raised more than $18,000 in cash donations, more than any candidate raised in the 2021 Ankeny School Board election. Transparency and candidates' willingness to engage with voters on the record emerged as an issue during the campaign after the five candidates promoted by Republicans did not appear at a forum hosted by two nonprofit groups. Most said they had scheduling conflicts. Ankeny schools have been a hotbed for fiery. Headlines and political tension in recent years over issues such as COVID 19 policies and unauthorized student led after school drag show, contentious teacher and staff contract negotiations, and the board's rejection in April 4 to 3. Of the board's rejection in an April 4-3 decision of the superintendent's recommendation to create a new specialist position focusing on equity and student performance. Incumbent Aaron Johnson, who was appointed to fill a vacancy, did not run in the election.
1: Iowa Board of Regents to consider report on university diversity, equity, inclusion programs. <coughs> The Iowa Board of Regents will consider a report this month recommending that the state's three public universities restructure their diversity, equity, and inclusion offices to eliminate any positions that are not necessary for the school's accreditation or to comply with state or federal law. The report, compiled by a study group, Comprised of Regents David Barker, Jim Lindenmeyer, and Greta Rouse, was released Tuesday. The full nine member Board of Regents will consider the report at its meeting November 15th and 16th. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs, known as DEI, have become a target of criticism by Republicans who argue they promote a left-leaning ideology. Republican lawmakers who control the Iowa legislature chastised administrators for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa this spring over the cost of their DEI programs. The three university presidents defended their DEI efforts, saying they helped students succeed on campus, including students of color, LGBTQ students, first-generation students, rural students, students with learning disabilities, and students from low-income families. The legislature, considered a bill earlier this year that would have required the three universities to disband their DEI programs and forbid state money from being spent on a DEI office or administrator. That bill did not pass, but Board of Regents President Michael Richards directed the universities in March to pause the implementation of any new DEI programs. Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law June 1st requiring the Board of Regents to review DEI programs at the three universities. The report released Tuesday contains several recommendations for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. In addition to restructuring any central university-wide DEI offices to eliminate functions that are not necessary for accreditation or to comply with the law, the report also says the three public universities should adjust or eliminate any DEI-focused positions not necessary for legal compliance or accreditation. Universities should also review the services provided by their diversity or multicultural affairs offices to ensure they are available to all students, the report says. The report says the board should adopt a policy consistent with the law prohibiting the consideration of race and other protected class characteristics in admissions The U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year struck down affirmative action policies at universities, writing that universities cannot consider race in their admissions process. Iowa's public universities rely on the Regent Administration Index for applications, which does not consider race or gender. And the report says The three universities should take reasonable steps to assure that no student, employee, visitor, or applicant is required to disclose their pronouns or to submit a DEI statement or participate in DEI initiatives. It also suggests standardizing annual employee guidance for separating personal political advocacy from university business. And it recommends the universities explore recruitment strategies to attract a diversity of intellectual and philosophical perspective among faculty and staff job applicants. Efforts to promote diversity and inclusion on campus will continue in certain areas to comply with the law, maintain universities' accreditation, and to continue participating in NCAA athletics. The report noted that the state's public universities' are required to comply with state and federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination in hiring or other programs based on race sex age disability or other protected classes the ncaa also requires division one schools to promote diversity and inclusion in athletics events hiring and coaching which includes completing an equity, diversity, and inclusion review every four years. And the report noted that some specific requirements that have been associated with DEI may be necessary to maintain the university's accreditation and eligibility for state and federal grants and financial aid programs.
0: Continuing now with stories in the Metro and Iowa section, the U.S. House censures Tlaib over Israel and Palestine remarks. This is Dateline Washington. The House voted Tuesday night to censure the only Palestinian American in Congress, Representative Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Michigan, over her remarks on the Israel-Hamas war. The move to censure Tlaib in a resolution introduced by Representative Mitch McCormick, a Republican of Georgia, was approved in the House by a vote of 234 to 188. Most House Republicans voted in favor of the measures, along with a handful of House Democrats. Representative Brad Schneider, a Democrat of Illinois who is Jewish and one of the Democrats who voted to censure Tlaib, said the resolution was not perfect in its language or form in a statement, but he said he thought there was no other recourse but to vote censure for her. It is the only vehicle available to formally rebuke the dangerous disinformation and dispersions that Representative Tlaib continues to use and defend, he said. House Republicans select successfully defeated a Democratic attempt to set aside the resolution in a procedural move, known as Motion to Table, earlier on Tuesday afternoon. Following the Motion to Table, Tlaib, surrounded by her fellow progressive colleagues, delivered an impassioned speech on the House floor while holding back tears. I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, Talib said Tuesday afternoon, holding up a framed picture of her grandmother. Just like my grandmother, like all Palestinians who just want to live her life with the freedom and human dignity we are all deserved, she said. The resolution targeted Tlaib's public statements about the Israel Hamas war and accused her of what it called promoting false narratives regarding the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel and for calling for the destruction of the State of Israel. That's a quote from the resolution. Among Tlaib's comments, that have caused the most controversy in Congress is her use of the phrase, quote, from the river to the sea, end quote, a pro-Palestinian slogan that Israel's supporters say is anti-Semitic and a call to destroy the state of Israel. Talib got more pushback from her colleagues after saying in a post on X, formerly Twitter, that the phrase is what was called an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. That's an end of the quote from the ex post. On the House floor, Talib emphasized her comments on the war are aimed exclusively at the Israeli government and not Jewish people. She has called for a ceasefire in the conflict as Israel continues its bombing of Gaza, which threatens Palestinian civilians. My criticism has always been of the Israeli government and President Benjamin Netanyahu's action, Talib said. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me, she added. What I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you, she concluded her statement. Talib survived a previous attempt last week by conservative firebrand representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a representative of Georgia, to censure her also over her comments on the war.
1: There are two small articles I will read. Iowa fairway worker killed in parking lot. Suspect later shot. An officer has been placed on leave after shooting a man accused of killing a grocery store employee on Tuesday night in Monticello, authorities said. Monticello Police Department officers were dispatched to a fairway meat and grocery on 420 North Farley Street in Monticello after receiving a report about a man being shot at about 7.30 a.m., Chief Britt D. Smith said in a news release. The employee who was shot was identified as Aaron McAtee, 48, of Monticello, Smith said. McAtee was transported to the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, where he later died. Nathan Russell, 38, of East Dubuque, Illinois, was identified as a person of interest during the investigation, Smith said. A Delaware County deputy found Russell in Hopkinton. Russell was shot after reportedly failing to comply with directions from the deputy and was transported to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics with gunshot injuries, Smith said. The deputy has been placed on critical incident leave pending the continued investigation, Smith said. In a Facebook post, the Fairway store said the incident was a senseless act of violence. We are grateful for how local authorities are handling this situation, it said. We have corporate office team members on site assisting the police and supporting our employees. The store was closed Tuesday. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, Jones County Sheriff's Office, and the Delaware County Sheriff's Office are investigating the shooting. There's no active threat, Smith said. And the next short one, bird flu hits Cossuth County, County Farm, with game pheasants. Bird flu hit a north central Iowa farm with game pheasants, commercial laying hens, and pea fowl, the ninth poultry operation in the state to be affected this fall by the deadly disease. The Iowa Department of Agriculture said about 8,400 game bird pheasants, 160 chickens, and 16 peafowl were on the Kossuth County farm where the infections with highly pathogenic avian influenza were detected. The virus is carried by the wild birds currently migrating across Iowa The current outbreak began in March 2022, then temporarily abated after March 2023, only to reappear in October. More than 16 million chickens, turkeys, ducks, and other birds in Iowa, and nearly 61.3 million birds nationally, in affected flocks have been destroyed in an attempt to contain the disease according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture data. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the recent infections in birds do not present a public health concern and it remains safe to eat poultry products.
0: And there are a couple of Nation and World articles in the Metro and Iowa section that we'll go ahead and look at. The first is the House Unsure, this is the U.S. House, is unsure on a plan to avert a shutdown. This is Dateline Washington. House Republicans are are racing to pass appropriations bills needed to avert a government shutdown ahead of a looming deadline. But lawmakers have acknowledged that Congress will have to kick the can down the road with another stopgap measure to temporarily keep the government's doors open. Newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican of Louisiana, offered three options to House Republicans in a closed-door conference meeting Tuesday morning. The first, what he called a laddered approach that would fund different aspects of the government up until different deadlines, what he called a clean stopgap measure, referred to as a continuing resolution until mid-January, or negotiating with the Senate in advance on a stopgap amicable. I'm sorry, amicable to both chambers. Members left the meeting unsure of the path forward to avert a shutdown and largely deferred to Johnson on how to handle government funding. But there was common agreement that time has once again run out for Congress to pass a long-term funding package. I think it's just physically impossible that we can get all of the appropriations bill through all of the conferencing done with the Senate, Representative John Rutherford, a Republican of Florida and a member of the House Appropriations Committee said. Johnson has been avoiding tipping his hand as to how the House will pass a government funding package, but made clear to members in Tuesday morning's closed-door meeting and private conversations that he does not want to see the government shut down. I've been involved in enough conversations with our new Speaker to know that he does not want to shut down the government, and he understands that it's very bad for our country and it's impossible to get out of, so there's no point in getting one to begin with, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican of Pennsylvania, told USA Today. While it's unclear how House Republicans plan to prevent a shutdown, Johnson sought to portray confidence in the lower chamber's ability to fund the government and said he will unveil his plans in what he called short order at a GOP leadership news conference on Tuesday. Trust us, we're working through the process in a way I think the people will be proud of, he added. Congress has to pass 12 separate appropriations bills to fund the government, with each bill targeting specific functions of the government. The House has passed seven bills, while the Senate passed three in one single package known as a minibus. I suppose that's opposed to an omnibus bill that covers everything. A shutdown was successfully averted in the waning hours before the deadline in September with a clean continuing resolution that kept government funding at current levels, much to the dismay of more conservative lawmakers adamant back then that any funding package contained cuts. I don't think a clean continuing resolution is going to be something that a lot of us could say that we could support. Representative Chip Roy, a Republican of Texas and a member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus on Monday, already appearing to rule out his vote for a clean stopgap measure. But with nine days left until a shutdown, even hard right members have begun to recognize that the most likely option to avert a shutdown would be a clean continuing resolution. One House conservative, Representative Ann B. Ogles, a a Republican from Tennessee who is staunchly against clean stopgaps, told USA Today that he would consider supporting one on the floor, even if it did not have any cuts, but something to take home to the district, such as border security. A clean continuing resolution would almost certainly lose a handful of Republican votes, a dangerous prospect in the lower chamber where the GOP controls the House with a razor-thin majority. To offset those votes, Rep. Thomas Massey, a Republican of Kentucky, suggested attaching a policy provision amicable to some Democrats and to the Senate. But underscoring the uncertainty surrounding any government plan, when asked as to what that policy provision could be, Massey shrugged and said, I don't know. Other conservative GOP members, with a sizable number coming from the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, are pushing for the novel laddered approach. Such a measure would fund each of the 12 appropriation bills until different deadlines. The laddered stopgap presented behind closed doors would fund four bills until mid-December and the remaining eight bills until mid-January. The proposal has drawn mockery from House Democrats and confusion from other House Republicans who say the lattered approach is too convoluted. Sounds overly complicated, Fitzpatrick said of the lattered proposal. Fitzpatrick added that he thinks Congress should keep it simple because we have to fund the government, he said. Will skipping
1: debates catch up to Trump? 2016 no-show in Iowa resulted in a caucus loss and this comes from Miami. There's little doubt that Donald Trump has benefited from skipping the Republican presidential debates, so far at least. The price for ignoring upcoming face-offs in Iowa and New Hampshire has yet to be calculated. While the former president counter-programmed Wednesday's third debate in Miami, he planned a campaign rally in nearby Hialeah, Florida. Trump is also calling on the Republican National Committee to cancel future debates, sparing him the decision of whether to attend those high-profile events. It is time for the Republican establishment to stop wasting time and money trying to push weak rhinos and never-Trumpers that nobody wants on the ballot, the GOP frontrunner said, using an acronym for Republicans in Name Only, during a Florida Freedom Summit last weekend. Don't bet on the Republican National Committee heeding Trump's call. It has already scheduled the next face-off, excuse me, for December 6th in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Republicans are also planning to hold two debates in January before both the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, the first two delegate contests on the Republican calendar. That means those debates will be harder to reject for Trump who paid a huge price for skipping an Iowa debate in 2016. Trump's refusal to debate is part of an overall strategy to cast himself as the inevitable nominee. He has repeatedly called on other candidates to drop out and asked donors to stop giving his challengers money, saying the funds should be used in the campaign against President Joe Biden and the Democrats. In his weekend speech in Florida, Trump said at one point that, quote, people don't want debates. At another point, why would I do a debate? Trump and his allies say there's no reason for him to share a debate stage with a pool of struggling also-rans. He is not inclined to debate other Republicans, especially if he has a big lead in the polls, and he does. After all, his strategy is working. The former president has a slightly bigger lead over the Republican field than he did when the first GOP debate took place in Milwaukee, and the lead is more than 40 percentage points in some cases. On August 23rd, the day of the first Republican debate, Trump led the pack with 55.4%, according to the averages of national polls compiled by the Real Clear Politics website. On the eve of the third debate, Trump was averaging 57.9% in national polls, <clears throat> according to the Real Clear Politics, followed by Ron DeSantis at thirteen point four and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at eight point nine percent. Haley does better in individual state polls and has passed DeSantis for second place in some of them. It certainly hasn't hurt him, said Alan Schroeder, author of Presidential Debates Fifty Years of High Risk TV. There doesn't seem to be a dent in his ratings. As a result, Schroeder said, I don't think he's in a hurry to go up on that stage with those other rivals. A recent Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom poll showed that 57% of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers weren't bothered by Trump's absence from the debates however the iowa poll also found that 42% of respondents said trump should participate in at least one debate before the iowa caucuses january 8 of january 15